Welcome to episode 101 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my returning guest is the writer and trivia host, Terrence Belazzo. Terrence, welcome back to Junk Filter. Thank you so much for having me back, Jesse, for another fun-filled episode of pop music with an Australian twist. This podcast has always been about the intersection between film and music. And so with the recent passing of Olivia Newton-John, this fits like a glove. And we're going to talk about her incredible career. One of the most influential people on modern culture, even if she's not often credited as such. Like when I was on here last time with the, the ABBA episode, I wasn't a giant fan of hers for a long time. Like I, But her music and her movies have permeated my entire life. Some of the biggest, most iconic songs of the late 70s, and one very specifically in the early 80s that changed music, kind of. Well, she starred in one of the biggest movie musicals of all time, and I would say that her success on the music charts changed the sound of at least two big genres, pop and country music. She was the original Taylor Swift. She was a country artist, and then turned pop, and had success in both. Olivia Newton-John was born in Britain, but moved to Australia as a five-year-old girl and was raised in Australia. Just like the Bee Gees, English boys who grew up in, in, in Australia. It was a, a great train of singers who moved to Australia. What I found fascinating and I didn't know was that her maternal grandfather was, was physicist Max Born. The man who won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of quantum physics which becomes part of Olivia's life later on in 1981 in the song Physical. But we'll get to that again later. Uh, but that's a crazy stat. I had no idea. She, she talked about as a kid remembering, or no, her mother talks about Albert Einstein coming over and chatting. <laughs> in one lifetime, she met John Travolta <laughs> and Albert Einstein. <laughs> she became a pop singer in Australia as a teenage girl. Yeah, she was on a bunch of TV shows uh, starting in 1964, uh, where she met her best friend at the time, Pat Carroll, who they had a little singing group, Pat and Olivia. They appeared on the popular Australian music show, Bang a Boomerang. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, but I, I, I can't remember the name of the show, but it was called like Bongaruno or something like that. It had an Australian There's one show Australian that name. One show she was on that was, that was just called The Happy Show. <laughs> and also, wasn't her a screen debut in a movie that had a, a dumb name? Yeah, it was... Uh, it was called, like, That's Australia for You or something like that. It, it was a 1965 uh, telefilm called Funny Things Happen Down Under. <laughs> with her then-boyfriend, Ian Turpy, who was much older than she was. Yes, and... Um, the guy, John Farrar, who was uh, Olivia's principal songwriter and responsible for all of her bangers, married Pat. He was sort of involved in their careers early on. Sadly, I mean, I don't want to get into this too much, but uh, Pat was only 15 when she met her future husband. Yes. I d no, I don't, I don't think John was – he wasn't in his 30s, but he was certainly not 15 when they met on the set of The Happy Show. <laughs> 
one thing that I didn't know about Olivia Newton-John is I always presumed that Grease was her film debut. But in fact, she starred in a movie in 1970 that was a sci-fi musical comedy called Two Moro. T-O-O Moro. I watched the, you sent me a copy of it. Well, uh, it's on YouTube. Um, and I, I, and you said, just watch the first 10 minutes. And I just watched the first 10 minutes. It's, uh, it's not good. It's Don, Don Kirshner produced it, although he stepped away from it. Don Kirshner, who, of course, gave us the monkeys. Uh, but he stepped away from it because he felt that it, it had lost its artistic vision somewhere along the filming. It was, yeah, co-produced by Harry Saltzman of the Bond series and Don Kirshner. The idea was that they were going to have success with this new made-up band for a series of musical comedy films. Sadly, the series only uh, had one entry called Two Moro. And uh, basically the plot is that these aliens from another world who are walking around among the humans are trying to save their distant planet, and they come across the music of this band of uh, hippie kids called Two Moro, and they zap them from the Earth to their home planet to try to save their population because they have some kind of musical instrument that they use that one of the guys in the band invented. The tonalizer? <laughs> and it uh, it has some frequency that will create world peace or something like that. I'm making the movie sound more watchable than it is. Oh, yeah. It's incredibly unwatchable. Um, I, I do like, though, that it's set, it's set in the real world in 1970, and these aliens think the only music on Earth that is good is by this band Tomorrow, when you just had the decade of the 60s happen. And there are hundreds of groups, like the Beatles. But now this Tomorrow group is going to make these aliens not sad anymore. One fun thing that I found on the internet is that uh, when Greece was a gigantic hit in 1978, Tomorrow was re-released in some international markets to try to cash in on the success of Olivia Newton-John. And I found this very strange Argentine trailer for the 1979 reissue of Tomorrow, where they try to trick you. They made the title longer, though. It's Tomorrow, Tomorrow, Manana, as he says a million times. <laughs> Olivia Newton-John. Que triunfó en Wish, ahora triunfa de nuevo en. Tomorrow, tomorrow, mañana. Dígame, ¿qué opina de la sentada? I do love how the opening of that trailer, it, it, it just says 1978 Greece, and then 1979 tomorrow. <laughs> Which is a lie. <laughs> And also, Argentina was in a dictatorship at the time, right? So mm -hmm. it's like, they were like, oh, we we can't get any movies into Argentina. Oh, I know. I've got a print of Tomorrow, Tomorrow, Manana. <laughs> Have the people of Argentina not suffered enough that they're being tricked into seeing a 10-year-old Olivia Newton-John movie with <laughs> nothing to do with Greece at all? She started to have pop music hits in Britain and then in America. Somehow similar trajectory to ABBA's plan on conquering the world. Yeah, funny. They will intersect momentarily. Uh, her first hit uh, was uh, a, a remake of a Bob Dylan song, If Not For You, uh, from her first album. And then she won a bunch of Grammys and American Music Awards and uh, Country Music Awards. I think, I think, I could be wrong, and if I'm wrong... Let me know. I think she was the first woman to win vocalist of the year at both the Grammys and the and the Country Music Association Awards. 
she had a huge, huge hit with two songs. One was called Let Me Be There. And, and then her other big hit in country was I Honestly Love You. Which has become a classic since. Big hit in the adult contemporary market and uh, a fairly big hit in pop music, but a number one song in country music. And in fact, there was some controversy uh, when she won the Country Music Award for Best Female Vocalist of the Year. She beat out Dolly Parton, Loretta Lynn, Tanya Tucker, and Anne Murray. If you watch the clip of that uh, American Music, or the the Country Music Awards, uh, I don't know who it is. I couldn't find his name. The old man who reads out the winning envelope says, the winner is... Oliver Newton John. Maybe sh- he was maybe he was part of the anti uh, Olivia movement that that sprouted up in country music because apparently there was a schism in their voters <laughs> when she won. There was a splinter group of uh, voters that uh, I what did, what were they going to do? Start their own music association? They did for a brief time called the Association of Country Entertainers, like like when the Catholic Church split and there were two popes. <laughs> uh, but then, but then Stella Parton, Dolly's sister, wrote a song called "Ode to Olivia" uh, to, because they were friends, which kind of settled down the the split in the association. She had a very big hit in pop and country with "Have You Never Been Mellow," and that was, I think, John Farrar's song. He wrote that, I believe, mm-hmm. and it was a huge hit. Um, a song again that I've known about. I don't really know the song too well but I you know the the lyric and it's become a, a phrase also it was a huge hit again in the country music uh, a world of, of things where she was for a long time Olivia Newton-John was part of the change in the sound of country music, a term that I've read as countrypolitan, which is the pop music sound that crept into country music through the 60s and in through the 80s. There are a bunch of songs that were big hits in country that are basically uh, ornate pop songs, like Don't It Make My Brown Eyes Blue and uh, The Most Beautiful Girl in the World by Charlie Rich. These are like the country music for people in in the big cities to enjoy. If you happen to see the most beautiful girl and walk out on me, tell her I'm sorry. Tell her I need my baby. Oh, won't you tell her? Yeah, and I think that's what caused the the schism, as as we've said, is that people in Nashville felt that the the music was getting away from them and their and and their roots, uh, when instead it was making country more uh, more palatable to a larger audience, mm-hmm. and that led, led, of course, to new country in the '90s, which is a whole different world, but a huge thing. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into it when we uh, go a little further, but there's a sort of a distinct country-ish sound to some of Olivia's pop hits in the 80s that uh, I think explain the careers of people like Shania Twain and, and Taylor Swift, like that they're, they don't really, there's a country sort of feeling to them if they're not necessarily country music, like songs that could be hits, uh, like she had hits in the 80s that could have been country music hits in the modern era. 
Well, I listened to the album, Let's Get Physical, and aside from physical and make a move on me, the other songs are kind of kind of countryish. Yeah. They're slower, a bit twangier, not as not as synthesized and eighties sounding. Well, there was that song called Landslide off Physical that mm-hmm. uh, sort of sounds like a country song to mm-hmm. She's got this sort of country twang in her voice. Before I did the research on the show, I always thought that Olivia Newton-John completely dropped country music once Grease uh, became huge. But even when you listen to Hopelessly Devoted to You, that sounds like a country song, too. It's got a slide guitar. That's the that, that's the definition of a country song, when you got a slide guitar. Uh, so, we're talking about ABBA earlier. In 1974, she Olivia Newton-John was chosen to represent the UK at Eurovision, which I'd forgotten about. Yeah, what was the name of her song? She was, uh, it was called Long, Long Live Love. Yeah. So maybe that's how she met Abba backstage because that was the year they won Waterloo. Yes. So she, so Olivia Newton John finished fourth behind Abba, tied with three other people. Um, and then, uh, of course, Abba went on to become Abba. And later on that year, I think she had a TV special. Olivia Newton-John, with guests Abba and Andy Gibb, which is a, a joy to watch if you like all this music, which I do. Olivia Newton-John, for some reason, every year had a TV special on ABC. Not the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, but in the States. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, annual TV specials. Like, Olivia Newton-John was already a famous um, pop and country star uh, in that sort of adult contemporary zone, like the Karen Carpenter zone. And of course, she was also friends with Karen Carpenter. Yeah, apparently they were best friends. There's many pictures of them hanging out, having fun, being mellow, as her <laughs> song would say. 1977 or so was the year that Olivia Newton-John made the leap from pop and country music to big screen stardom when she agreed to star in Grease. I think Grease is still one of the top selling soundtrack albums of all time. It is number three, behind The Bodyguard and Saturday Night Fever. Uh, huge. Now, Grease was a, was a movie that I hadn't seen for quite a while, but I used to watch it a lot, specifically when I worked at a video store. One of the other employees every night when we were cleaning up would put Grease on. So I heard it every night for about five years. Uh, so I'm qu- quite uh, well-versed in the world of Grease. When I was a kid, I would go see movies several times, even if I didn't love them. So I saw Grease about three times, uh, maybe four times. Uh huh. And something I, this is what I was going to surprise you with, which you may have, have read, but the original casting of Grease, uh, adult movie star Harry Reams <laughs> was cast as Coach Calhoun originally. <laughs> But then Alan Carr felt that it would not be the right move, so they recast it with Sid Caesar. Yeah. But what a movie that would have been if Harry Reams was in Greece. 
Grease is an incredible movie because it has undeniable appeal. Maybe that was the reason that I saw Grease a few times is like, even if I didn't love it, I was well aware that this is like iconic stuff. <laughs> you know, the big music number at the end with uh, Olivia turning into the black leather. Uh, she's wearing like skin tight shark skin black pants. Yeah. And the, the story goes that they she had to be sewn into them every day to shoot because they were so tight. Uh, it's a, I mean, for a lot of people, that's a very iconic scene and one that uh, is uh, formative sometimes for some young men. Mm-hmm. Um, I it's because it's funny that song "You're the One That I Want" is not from the original stage show. It was written by John and Farrar. Uh, his two songs, uh, "Hopelessly Devoted to You" and "You're the One That I Want," he wrote for the movie, which are the two most famous songs, arguably. Yeah, well, and Summer Nights is, is, but that's from, and Grease Lightning, those are both from the musical. The funny thing about Grease, I mean, this is something that when I was, you know, 10 years old, I wouldn't have picked up on, but all of the high school seniors in Greece are all in their late 20s and early 30s. It's insane to watch now. Uh, I mean, you kind of knew as a kid, but you're like, ah, oh, they're old people because we're kids. But Stocker Channing was 33. Travolta was relatively youthful, 23, but Olivia Newton-John was 28 or 29, and Dee Dee Khan was in her early 30s. <laughs> Dee Dee Khan shows up in Greece too, as the same character. As Frenchie, the only one from the original. I, 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 also the, the, the pizza face guy, or the crater face guy. Yeah. He's in Greece too, also. Well, I think Sid Caesar and Eve Arden return as well, and like they, they what else were they doing? <laughs> yeah, in the in the late in the late seventies. <laughs> uh, so you said you didn't, you, you haven't rewatched Greece, right? I know Greece so well that I I decided that I didn't need to actually watch it again. I had fun. I, watching I saw it again. Greece many times. Yeah, yeah, I had fun watching it again. It just, you, I just knew everything about it. Um, I remember I, uh, I did a lip sync in grade, uh, six with, uh, this girl, Jennifer in my class in Calgary to you're the one that I want. It was very exciting. Olivia Newton, John became an instant sex symbol. I mean, people thought of her as adorable and stuff, but in Greece, she changed her, uh, her visual appearance at the end of the film when she becomes that vamp, uh, you know, a, a career move that sort of echoes itself in later in Olivia's career where she, got really sleazy in the early 80s. Uh, I, I watched a few documentaries about Greece and the actors and people talking about that scene where she comes as the as the bad Sandy, they all said this the same thing that, well, she showed up on set that day and we had no idea who she was. We were surprised. Like, come on. You knew who it was. You're making a movie. Well, I read that uh, Livia said that when she came out of the trailer dressed as Sandy too, as she referred to that, version of the character that uh, the crew members were dropping their sandwiches on the ground. <laughs> so much waste. That's why, that's why the movie had such a big budget because of all the uh, ruined sandwiches because of that scene. Now I remember as a kid, uh, you know, uh, I grew up in a, a, in a pretty progressive household and I remember being a little bit alarmed by the finale of Greece which suggests that uh, you give up your independence and turn into the to the girl that your boyfriend wants you to be. Yeah, that's always been a, a troubling spot for a lot of people. And that's why Marie Osmond turned down the role of Sandy, because she didn't like the transition at the end. Uh, 
I, I, yeah, it's it's a weird, it's a weird plot that the on, the only way she can get Danny is to become bad. Uh, but then they fly away in a car, so all's all's fine. But yeah, a lot of people don't like the ending of that. I forget if the musical ends that way or not. Originally, I don't know if it did. I think it does now because they based the musical more on the movie. But I was fine with it always. It's a nice dance number. Yeah, and it's a super memorable song, and it's done with a lot of panache. Like, it's a instant iconic stuff would be oh, how yeah. I would describe it. Like, I don't wonder why Greece was popular. Now, in fact, it's so popular that you told me you found out that the current premiere of Ontario, Doug Ford, was in a production of Greece in high school? Yes. <laughs> that is outstanding. He played one of the T-Birds. I, want, I was hoping he played Kaniki. Because in the, the, the musical, Kaniki sings uh, Grease Lightning. And so I want there to be a video proof of, folks, this <laughs> car could be hydromatic. Folks, this car could be systematic. And that whole thing. <laughs> what a... Just imagine that. Grease, of course, they couldn't get John or Olivia to come back for the sequel. So they made Grease 2, the movie that is best remembered for bringing us Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, she was, what, 20 in it? Mm-hmm. It, it was before Scarface. Yeah, Gre- Grease 2, it's funny, you. we talked about this also. Grease 2, I don't remember much about it, but the two things I remember are the song Cool Rider and, uh, was it Go Out Tonight or? Score Tonight. Score Tonight. But Cool Rider lives rent-free in, in my head and has since I first saw the movie. Yeah. Would love an oral history of Bruce too. Yeah, that that'd be great. With with uh, one of the stars of it, uh, Maxwell Caulfield, who plays the new Danny Zuko, who's Australian because they yeah. turned the, the roles around. Um, wanted the movie to 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 be called Son of Greece, <laughs> but the the producers said no. We'll stick with Greece too. I found this very strange TV special from 1980 called. Olivia Newton-John's Hollywood Nights that aired on the West Coast immediately after the Oscar broadcast on ABC. <laughs> Who sticks around? Well, in on the West Coast, the Oscars are over at 9 o'clock. Oh, right. So now you can watch this, which was going to be a fantastic special. Let's name some of the guest stars here. We have Ted Knight. We have Dick Clark. We yeah. have Andy Gibb. Tina Turner. Elton John. Cliff Richard. Who? Oh God! Olivia Newton-John tried to make Cliff Richard a thing in the states for years. Yes, <laughs> huge in England, like enormous, but never quite made it in North America. But she kept tra- he he was on all her shows. He would show up here and there. He sings on Xanadu, um, but it never worked out. The other thing that Olivia Newton-John was really twin to in her uh, singing career in the late seventies was Andy Gibb, her fellow Australian. They were never an item, were they? No. No, but he was on, he's on this, the special with ABBA she did in 75 or 76. He's on this, uh, nights, is it Nights in Hollywood? Mm-hmm. Or she, the Hollywood opening, Nights. Hollywood Nights, right, because the opening song is her version of the Bob Seger classic, Hollywood Nights. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, but in this, so this special is clearly, we think it was to advertise Xanadu, right? 
Well, it, it aired before Xanadu. And what was so bizarre about this special is that they have Gene Kelly in it. And I think they briefly mentioned Xanadu and he does a dance number on the special that's actually shot better than the one that's in the movie. The, uh, the song they <laughs> sing is about making movies. Yeah. The whole special is uh, is all about the magic of Hollywood. Uh, very, uh, very presumptuous. And it also ends with Olivia Newton-John's uh, sincere thanks to the fans, the true stars of Hollywood. That was very, it's, a, it's like a tweet you wrote, Jesse. I know. 40 years earlier. <laughs> of all the nights I've had in Hollywood, this one is right up there. So you people at home, please keep in mind that whenever you're watching someone accept an award, thanking all the relatives and friends, the friends we owe the most to are you. The people who go to the movies, watch the TV shows and listen to the records. You're the ones who make Hollywood what it is. You are the magic of Hollywood. Um, but <laughs> this special is insane in that it aired on television with all these stars. The... There's segments with there's only I think two of them with Dick Clark and Ted Knight. Who was Mary Tyler Moore even on the air still at that point? No. <laughs> so this was this was between that and and Too Close for Comfort. Yeah. yeah. So Ted Knight is there as a reporter, and Dick Clark is there, and they keep throwing it to locations in uh, England and Australia where Olivia Newton-John lived, and these ridiculous comedy scenes. Were they doing like Battle of the Network Stars or something? I was trying to figure out what the joke was with all these uh, cutaways to sports commentary from Ted Knight. It may, it may have, because well, that's from ABC, right? It may have been a, a, a send up of Battle of the Network Stars. Uh, but it's, it's impossible to watch. Those segments are just grating. Uh, so Andy Gibb shows up, as you mentioned, and it's a, it's a salute to American music. And it's Andy Gibb, Cliff Richard, Elton John, and Olivia Newton-John. And before the song starts, Andy Gibb says, Buddy Holly. And then they all jump up, and Elton John comes out and looks completely off his rocker. <laughs> and they sing, oh boy, for tw like, it seems like 20 minutes, because they go to another comedy sketch in the middle of this song, and you yeah. hear it in the background. It's just insanity. Sanadu. Traveling through time, she's a shooting star, a dazzling dream brought to life. Xanadu, a mystical, magical moment where music and love come alive. Xanadu, starring Olivia Newton-John, Gene Kelly, and the music of ELO. Original soundtrack on MCA records and tapes. Xanadu, a musical fantasy from Universal Pictures. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. So, uh, this takes us to Xanadu. It's very strange that Xanadu is a real film. I had never actually watched the entire movie before. I did for this show. I've seen all the other roller disco movies of the period, like Roller Boogie and uh, Skate Town USA. I've seen Can't Stop the Music, the Village People movie. I've seen The Apple, which is the worst and cokiest of all of these films. But Xanadu 
it's kind of enjoyably bad, I would say. I, 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 I liked it more than I thought I would. It was a movie that I had never seen, but was one I wanted to see. So it, since we've talked about this, I've watched it, I think, five times. <laughs> You're, you've been Xanadu-pilled. I, I can't stop it. I love it. It is so, it's, not, it's no Citizen Kane. Let's make no bones about this. But it's, a, it's an enjoyably bad movie because of the soundtrack. Well, this is the strange thing about Xanadu is that the movie was a big bomb. It was not screened in advance for critics. It was supposed to show on a thousand screens, but they actually capped it at about 200 screens. It didn't get the wide release that uh, it was expected to. I guess Universal was trying to sit on the movie to a certain extent, but the soundtrack went double platinum and it had at least three top 10 hits. It's an insane soundtrack. And it's the only reason the movie is still around. Um, Cause I knew all, all the songs from the movie without ever having seen the movie. Uh, but then you see them in the, in the pastiche that is Xanadu and it's something else. The weird thing about Xanadu is the director is a man named Robert Greenwald who is still working as a director these days, but now he makes these activist documentaries. Like he did a movie called Outfoxed, which was all about how Fox News lies all the time. There were these sort of documentaries that are mostly just clips and some talking head interviews. And then they always end with a call to action. Like, you know, if you're worried about Fox's control, get involved in community politics, tell your friends. There are all these documentaries that offer a prescriptive solution at the end, which is always don't forget to vote. That's why voting is so important. So what, what what brought him there from directing the 1980 musical masterpiece Xanadu? This is what I find so confusing. Uh, I did see a making of Xanadu documentary that came with one of the DVDs, and they do talk to Greenwald uh, quite a bit. Because I was under the impression that maybe Greenwald was hoping that you would never bring up Xanadu. <laughs> <laughs> the problem with Xanadu on a fundamental level is that it was a film that became a mess while they were making it. Like it was supposed to be a roller disco movie, but then all of a sudden they got Olivia Newton, John and they got Gene Kelly to come back. And all of a sudden they kept uh, broadening the scope of the movie. It, it started getting a bigger budget, but it also was directed by somebody who wasn't uh, didn't know what he was doing in terms of directing musicals. The cinematographer uh, wasn't trained in uh, filming musicals. So there's something fundamentally wrong about the presentation of all the dancing. You can't, it, the dancers are always blocking each other. It, it's shot poorly. Now, I don't know too much about cinematography, but I watched a small documentary about specifically Xanadu. And yeah, watching it, it looks messy. There's a scene where you can see the crew mm -hmm. in one yes. of the dancing scenes on top yeah. of the wall. Uh, it, but, but the dancing is filmed extremely terribly, and for a musical that was supposed to be that, that was supposed to harken back to the the giant musicals of the '40s and '50s, it just looks terrible. Mm -hmm. um, now you mentioned they got Gene Kelly back; he hadn't made a movie in quite a while, and uh, he <laughs> he agreed to do the movie with one stipulation: that he wouldn't dance. It's like making an action movie, getting Jackie Chan, who says, I'm not going to do any stunts. Great. Let's film this thing. This is where, that was his one condition. He's not going to dance. He got coaxed into it by the choreographer, Kenny Ortega. Uh, eventually, Gene Kelly uh, did consent to dance. But the problem is, whether or not the choreography is good, I can't tell, because 
the camera work is so bad and the directing decisions are so bad. The big mistake that a lot of people make when they do musicals is that you have to show the dancer's entire body. And there are many examples in this movie that are just medium close-ups of people dancing where they're cutting back and forth, but there's no kineticism to it. There's no camera movement to it. It's just a bunch of stuff happening in front of you. And also Xanadu has this very uh, sort of coked out LA aesthetic where they keep applying these uh, optical effects on everything, like putting halos around people. And uh, the the big number at the end of the film where they're all dancing around in, in this big circle on roller skates and there's this big pl- circular platform on top. It reminded me of... Uh, carousel the sort of the sequence in logan's run where they (laughs) kill all the people that they've turned 30 Uh uh-huh that would have (laughs) maybe been a better ending uh well let's uh for those who don't know the plot of the the movie is there's a failed artist played by actor michael beck who's the poor man's the poor 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 man's andy gibb yeah um and one day he he throws paper away and then it makes the nine Muse, the nine muses of Zeus come to life from a a drawing somewhere in Los Angeles. Yeah, there's a mural on the wall of of these nine Greek muses, and they all magically come to life when these ripped up pieces of paper touch them. And then from there, Olivia Newton-John playing the I can't say her name, but in the the movie she's Kira, but the the Greek name I is something I don't know. It's Terpsichore. Terpsichore. She's, She's one of Zeus's daughters. She's one of the great uh, muses. So she uh, helps. She inspires Michael Beck's character, Sonny Malone, and Gene Kelly's character, Danny, Danny McGuire, to open up a roller disco called Xanadu. That's basically the, the plot. Also, Michael Beck, his character, is ha- has a weird job. He, when he decides to stop freelancing and being an independent artiste, he goes back to his old job, which was painting gigantic murals of album covers, like the kind that you would see on Sunset Strip. Like his job is to paint the giant Steely Dan album cover. And the workshop. <laughs> of Power Records or whatever. Yeah, but the workshop has like three other artists there yeah. and like a boss who uh, seems to be a millionaire running yeah. this uh, album, giant album painting shop. What a job. And he's like, I need, you know, I need you to work for me because you're the fastest artist in town or something <laughs> like that. Like, also, the the guy who runs the uh, the sweatshop for artists <laughs> reminded me of the producers of Xanadu. He seemed like this sort of coked out L.A. music weirdo. Yeah, I have a few. Well, it's funny because uh, Lawrence Gordon, who produced Xanadu, also produced Die Hard. Yes. And the same kind of character. What's his name? Uh, Ellis. Yeah. They look the same. They have the same <laughs> mannerisms. I wonder if he was inspired by Xanadu. Yeah. It must have been a crazy set Would you, with the producers and everyone. I don't think the cast so much. Gene Kelly looked like he was having a, a good time. Yeah. Although he, he said that he knew midway through it was going to be a terrible movie, <laughs> but he kept making it. Well, he's a pro. I want your thoughts on this one scene in Xanadu that mystified me. So Michael Beck meets Kira when she's roller skating with laser lights flying behind her. She gives him a kiss and then she skates away. And then he goes to his job painting giant record covers. And he's, <laughs> he's given the, this new album cover and the Olivia Newton-John is on the album cover with a laser light around her. And 
I don't understand this incredible investigation that Michael Beck starts walking around the neighborhood with the album cover, asking passersby if they've seen this girl. Because apparently the original album cover didn't have her on it and she appears. So he gets very confused and leaves his job painting giant record covers. And then what he goes, he talks to his boss, yeah. uh, Simpson. The only name he has is Simpson. Hey, Simpson. Uh, he's like, I don't know who she is. I didn't pay her. Then he goes to talk to a photographer, who the guy who took the album cover picture, even though the picture on the album cover is clearly a drawing. It's not even a photograph. And he's an, he's an Italian guy who says, I don't know. She blah, 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 blah. And then he, well, he was taking pictures and then she appeared in his lens. He didn't right. mean to take her photo. Right. But no one paid her. So that's why they can't track her down because there, there's no paper trail to who Kira is. And then the next scene is, uh, so he finds out from the photographer that she just appeared. And then he hears the sound of a clarinet <laughs> and bumps into Gene Kelly playing the clarinet on the beach. And it turns out that uh, he was in love with a girl because the the uh, Gene Kelly character was supposedly in Glenn Miller's orchestra. By the way, the young Gene Kelly that we see in the background in that scene is Matt Latanzi, who uh, was eventually Olivia Newton-John's husband. And the father and he, of, of her and child. And the father of their, their daughter, Chloe. And he was also like 12 years younger than Olivia, too, when they met. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so the the guy that you see in the background who's supposed to be the young Gene Kelly is Matt Latanzi. But Gene Kelly never – in the entire movie, Gene Kelly never lets Michael Beck's character know that he knows who Kira is. Well, yeah, that's what I found very confusing. He has this sort of fantasy where he's reunited with her. But then when he meets her later, he doesn't say, hey, that's my girlfriend or anything like that. Well, there's one scene where she says, you can pretend it's 1944. And then he says, I don't have to pretend it is 1944. And then it wipes. So that either Gene Kelly is uh, early stages of dementia there, or there was more script about him knowing her that we don't get to see. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he said that he liked the story of Xanadu. I don't know what that means. Um, and there's one segment in the movie that he actually directed, which is the dance number between him and Olivia Newton-John, which is probably the... The most competent. Yeah, the most competent scene, Yes. One of the things that was so messy about Xanadu is that when they were all done filming, they realized that they had more stuff to do. So they had to add all these people were like, how come there's no scene where Gene Kelly uh, dances with Olivia Newton-John? So they're like, okay, we can add that. Gene Kelly uh, was already finished the movie and he agreed to come back, but on specific conditions, I guess he saw just the train wreck of the production of Xanadu. The set had to be empty except for him, Olivia Newton-John, the director and the cinematographer. Uh, no other dancers, no other crew members. And he also insisted that he directs uh, the camera work on that scene. And it looks a lot like the sort of stuff that he would do at MGM in the 50s. Like it, it's where they actually show the entire body or the camera goes up on a crane. So yeah. You can see the room. And uh, even though the room is a very boring looking room. The room there's nothing least, in the room at all. It's just them. Well, it, this is the thing about this, because they had already finished the movie. So that was like they had taken all the furniture out uh, in that scene. Uh, like it takes place in this big, big mansion where Gene Kelly improbably uh, lives <laughs> in Canada <laughs> with all this uh, antique furniture. But when they have this sort of fantasy scene with Olivia Newton-John, the room is completely empty. And that's simply because they got back into the soundstage where they filmed stuff like that, but they didn't splurge on 
on set decoration. And it's, I mean, it, as you said, it's the most competent scene, but it's still, it's a boring dance scene. Not as boring as the roller skating dance scene between Michael Beck and Olivia Newton-John uh, set to the song Suddenly by Cliff Richard and, and her. It's just them skating in the giant soundstage. It's so boring. Mm-hmm. The camera doesn't move. Uh, it's just, it's an awful dance scene. And she broke her coccyx making that scene. Yes. It sounded like a, just a disastrous shoot. I, I, apparently, it took almost a year to film, and that's probably including reshoots and things. The other uh, dilemma that they had was that uh, they had to make one sequence to be animated, and they got Don Bluth to do it simply because they were like missing more footage. And they're like, okay, well, why don't we just turn this into animation? We'll and it's, it's actually what kind of kickstarted Don Bluth's career. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's gone on to do some great things, but it's it's a great scene. It's a fun scene. Uh, but it was it was done out of expediency. It was sure. done out of the fact that they had all these holes in the script and, <laughs> and the finished movie that they had to like patch. That's going to fix it. Did you like all the Venetian blind screen wipes throughout the movie? Like every scene had a a, a Venetian blind effect to transition to the next scene. All the scenes. It's a, they had one choice. Let's do it. Wipe done. Uh, it's it's a poorly shot movie. It's a it's just a it's a bad. It's bad. So it's nice to look at sometimes, but it's just it's awful to watch it come together. There, there, there's there's one neat scene. Again, it's not shot great, but it's when the uh, when Danny McGuire and Sonny Malone are in, are envisioning what Xanadu's going to be, and there's the stage of the big band from the '40s, and the stage with the Tubes, the '80s uh, band, and their and their two songs merge into one song. It's a neat like for, like original mashup. Uh, but it's again, shot terribly. And the song is not that great. <laughs> yeah. And, and everybody looks pretty high throughout the movie. That was the one thing that I was sort of realizing. There was a period in the very late seventies, early eighties, where there were lots of movies that you can identify as being movies where people were on Coke the whole time, <laughs> like the apple. I can name a few Xanadu, uh, heaven's gate, uh-huh. the blues brothers, you know, where, where all these ideas are, are coming up from people who are just, you know, whacked out on well, coke. You just named four gigantic hit movies, so yes. at least it didn't get in the way. <laughs> She goes back into the mural, and then Michael Beck, for some reason, roller skates right up to the wall and goes through it and finds himself in Laserland, where Olivia Newton-John lives. She, she's gone. She basically, it's where Tron is. It's the same. It looks like <laughs> Tron, but not as good. Um, and then there's a scene where Michael Beck talks to Zeus. Yes. And Zeus has time to talk to this man. And Zeus lets, I guess, Zeus eventually lets uh, his daughter become mortal and live in happiness with... It is absolutely not clear what happens. So the scene before Sonny Malone, uh, Michael Beck, goes to Laserland, he's talking to uh, Gene Kelly about how she's gone, so he's not going to be at the opening night of Xanadu. And then Gene Kelly says, "You you have to go find her. If she can get here, you can get there. So he goes, talks to her, he leaves, and then the last line is um, the other god saying, maybe she can go back for one night. And then Zeus says, one night or forever, I don't know. And then the scene ends, then the next scene is the finale of Xanadu, 
where Michael Beck is in Xanadu, even though he said he wouldn't go. Yeah. And then Olivia Newton-John shows up at the end singing Xanadu, but it's not clear if she's been sent there or she, it, it doesn't make any sense. Well, you can tell at the end of the movie that, that, that they had to do all this damage control to get this movie into a releasable state. Um, the big number at the end where they're, <laughs> where it looks like there's a, they're in a gymnasium with a parquet floor. <laughs> and we see in the span of about six minutes, we see this synthesizer country music number that looks like the carousel scene from Logan's run. Well, oh, we see Olivia singing Xanadu. And then we see um, Olivia rocking out with some dancing girls and they're all wearing tiger skin print. Then we see Olivia singing a country tune, but they just keep cutting like one minute into the song. They cut to another song. And I could just tell that this was all supposed to be this big 45 minute showstopper that Universal Pictures said, get it all down to five minutes. There's no way. It seems like it was supposed to be like the grand finale of like a, a classic 1940s musical with hundreds of dancing girls and a big band. And, but again, because of the cinematography, it's shot terribly. And yeah, they cut it down. It's like a, it's like a, when you, if you go to any new kind of DJ night, the DJ plays like a minute of each song and keeps changing it until you have to go home. It, it does, it's very jarring. In this entire last 10 minutes, we first we hear Xanadu finally, the big song. Then we have this montage, and then we hear Xanadu again. And then the movie ends, and then we hear Xanadu again over the closing credits. In between that, though, you you you, you hear magic one more time. We didn't even talk about magic yet. Uh, you hear magic one more time when another waitress shows up, played by Olivia Newton-John, after she f- flies away. It, it, they don't explain the, the, the mythology of of the muses coming to earth. Also, there's a scene where uh, he, she's trying to tell Sonny who she is. And her line is ever heard the phrase kissed by a muse. I was like, I've, <laughs> I've never heard that no. phrase. Is that an actual thing people say? Those two songs are great. Xanadu uh, speaking of ABBA is a very ABBA ish song. I think I mean, it's dripping of ELO production. Um, but yes, it's a very ABBA sounding song. And then Magic was the biggest hit off the album going to number one for four weeks. It's in the movie, but it's not really highlighted. It's when Sonny first sees Kira skating in a garbage dump or something. And it's kind of played but muted. You can hear it kind of echoey. And then you hear a bit of it. And then at the end again, it comes back again, kind of echoey. But you don't really hear the full song. Yeah, it's strange because they were sort of jamming the song Xanadu down your throat in the last 20 minutes or so, but then they didn't really uh, showcase Magic, which was the bigger hit single. Mm-hmm. And in that last dance scene is where the big thing was. Gene, Gene Kelly, who was a very, very good skater, both ice and roller skating, they never show his feet. Yeah. It's just from his waist up, basically. There's an incompetence to this movie, as as expensive as it was. Hilariously, on the uh, special features on the DVD, the costume designer says that Xanadu was the movie that started the 80s craze for leg warmers. Yes, and then actually Don Bluth put them in the animated part uh, when uh, Olivia Newton-John is a bird. Her bird has little leg warmers on. I, oh, I also saw a, an interview with the guys from The Tubes, the band who played the rock and roll part of the yeah. dancing song. And in a, in a, in a throw off, the lead singer says, people always ask us to play the song live, but we never do. We never will. And he moves on. I'm like, what, what else are the tubes known for? It's a scene <laughs> from the Xanadu that people have probably seen. I'm sure there are diehard tubes fans out there, but play the song from the movie for God's sake. 
but you could tell that that was probably also reshoots. They were like, okay, we've got to get more. We've we're, we need more stuff in this movie. Well, that song is about seven hundred minutes long. Yeah, it just keeps going till the two stages merge. And then if you, if 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 you watch it, listeners, watch that scene. And when the two stages merge, you can tell the scene is supposed. To, they don't know when the scene is ending because they're all set up for the big ending for like thirty seconds until the song finally ends. It's very awkward to watch. Xanadu has its defenders. When I was looking around for what people have said about Xanadu, most people are like, I don't care what anybody says. I know people hate this movie, but I love it. I've seen it 10 times. You watched it five times in I, a week. I, I love it. I, it's become it's become a thing that I want to watch again, and I don't know why. I, but I've also found out, contrary, a lot of people don't even know what Xanadu is, which I found shocking. It's also worth noting that, uh, speaking of Xanadu and cocaine, that uh, in the in the mid '80s, there were all these uh, commercials that they ran in movie theaters that were anti-crack PSAs, including Pee Wee Herman and uh, Clint Eastwood and Olivia Newton-John. So she made some penance for all the 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 damage that Xanadu did <laughs> to uh, to young minds. The commercials are tough to watch because they look so terrible. They the people look uncomfortable in them. Yeah. Uh, hers, hers is weird because I guess she was she was still a huge star then. But like, you're going to make a mo- uh, a commercial about how crack is bad. All right. This is a vial of crack, rock cocaine. As you may have noticed, it doesn't come with a warning label. If it did, it might tell you that smoking crack affects the brain, the nervous system, the lungs, and the heart. It would also say that crack can kill you. The problem is, no one knows exactly how much it takes to do it. So every time you try it, it's a guessing game. And if you guess wrong with this stuff, you die. The weirdest part is, like, she says, it can kill you, but nobody knows exactly how much will kill you. (laughs) It's like, okay, Olivia. (laughs) If you did it eight times, you don't want to chance it with a ninth one. Let's talk next about her major contribution to pop music, which was her 1981 album, Physical. As we mentioned before, uh, Olivia Newton-John took a cue from the sort of good girl gone bad uh, image that made her so popular in Greece and applied it to her actual music career. Like she made a very, very forthright and uh, sleazy song that uh, they tried to undercut the sleaziness of the song by doing the wacky music video for physical. See, as a kid, I didn't know what the song was about. I just knew that the the video was about guys working out. Physical was the biggest hit of the 1980s of the entire decade. It was the most recent number one of any single released in the decade of the 80s. Physical replaced Private Eyes by Hall & Oates as number one. And then 10 weeks later, the first song to knock physical off the top of the charts was I Can't Go For That by Hall & Oates. A nice Daryl Hall, John Oates sandwich there for Olivia Newton-John. Some of the songs that didn't make it to number one because physical was parked there. Don't Stop Believing by Journey. Waiting for a Girl Like You 
by Foreigner, which was number two for the almost the entire time physical was number one. And every little thing she does is magic by the police, all blocked at number one by, by Olivia. This song deserves to get a little bit more credit for how influential it was on the sound of popular music throughout the 80s. And I think that this song led the way for uh, careers like Madonna's career. I think you're right. I mean, it has that. It's, it's, it's a song you know from what decade it's from immediately when the first note hits. And songs that came out after that kind of copied that uh, synthesizer kind of very, it's a very poppy song. So it was the first video that MTV played that had that featured uh, a gay couple. It's it's implied at the end that all the dudes in the gym are together. It was also the first video played on Beavis and Butthead. It was the first thing that they critiqued on the first episode of Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> I want to ask you this. So the lyric that I like the most is, I took you to an intimate restaurant, then to a suggestive movie. It sounds like it's written by someone who doesn't speak English, but <laughs> so it's 1981. Uh, let's pretend that the song has been out was the whole year. What suggestive movie do you think she took her date to? I have some options here for you from 1981. Was it there were many steamy movies that came out that year? Was it the classic Body Heat? Was it the French Lieutenant's Woman? Was it the Postman Always Rings Twice? Or the Gerard Depardieu classic La Femme de Côté, uh, The Woman Next Door. I have a fifth suggestion. Uh, so do I. <laughs> Go on. It could have been uh, Tarzan the Ape Man with uh, Bo Derek. <laughs> My, I have two other suggestions. Either uh, Arthur, <laughs> which came out that year, or the Tony Danza classic Going Ape. <laughs> I think it might have been one of those two. The other banger on the physical album is another single that she had that was uh, that peaked at number five called Make a Move on Me. That's a good song. That's John Farrar. That's a song I forgot that I knew until I, I listened to the whole physical album, uh, and I forgot that I knew that song. It was somewhere in the back of my, my brain because uh, it has a very it's a strangely catchy hook to it. It's funny because it's a song that I probably haven't heard since 1982 or so. But as soon as I played it again, I was like, oh, yes, I totally remember this song. Me too. Something came flooding back. I was like, yeah, I knew this one. Not as well as physical, but I knew it. And and you look at a career like Kylie Minogue and you just know that uh, Olivia Newton-John, her fellow Aussie, pioneered that sort of uh, infectious dance. Uh, you can hear the smile on Olivia Newton-John's face when she's singing, it's, you know, and, and you hear that in the music of people like Kylie Minogue. Yeah, you, you, that's what I watched. The, there's those stupid reaction videos on YouTube where it's like, a metal band listens to a song for the first time. And I watched uh, some guys listen to Xanadu, and they stopped it and said the only thing they, they could think of was they could hear how happy she was singing it. 
and all of her songs, except for the sad ones, uh, she's just joy. And that's what Kylie Minogue does, does also. Mm-hmm. But I think, thankfully, Olivia Newton-John and the Bee Gees came along from Australia. Because uh, there's that clip I mentioned earlier from 1983 where they did a salute to Australia at the American Music Awards. Mm-hmm. And Olivia Newton-John introduced it by saying, in 1962, Australia hit the, the music charts with the novelty hit, uh, Timey Kangaroo Down. And they play a bit. And then she says, and then 20 years later, a second novelty song, Shut Up or Your Face by Joe Dolce. Those are the two (laughs) big Australian songs until the Bee Gees came along and her. So thank God that we have people like Kylie Minogue now. And yeah, Yeah. In Excess was from Australia. Yeah, but uh, very sobering to find out that Shut Up or Your Face is an Australian song. Now, he's American. I always always thought of it as an Italian song. Me too. Classic. (laughs) It's It's played at all Italian weddings. Some funerals. Uh, I know that my, my my dad loved that song so much. He thought it was the funniest thing he'd heard. For this podcast, I also watched another movie that I had never seen and thought that I could get through my life without ever watching. 1983's Two of a Kind, the reunion of John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John to the silver screen. It continues her uh, history of making movies with a, uh, with a fantasy uh, plot. Mm-hmm. Like tomorrow, where they go up to space, Greece at, at the end when they fly away in a car. Xanadu, she's a muse, and this one, this one has uh, a very very strange framing device. The movie begins with some archangels in heaven, and God returns. God, voiced by Gene Hackman, uncredited, uncredited, probably didn't want to be credited. <laughs> Anyway, the archangels who have been in charge of heaven and earth in God's absence, including Scatman Crothers, Charles Durning, and Beatrice Strait, Oscar winner for Network, get in big trouble with when God returns. And and God, a vengeful God at this point, decides that mankind is not worth saving and threatens to flood the earth and get and bring all the people up to heaven. The angels, for some strange reason, uh, try to convince God that mankind is worth saving after all, and they pick what appears to be, at random, somebody that they hope will be a good person and can spare the earth, and they decide to uh, point to John Travolta's character named Zach, who is a failed inventor in Hawk to the Mob, who decides to try and rob a bank. And uh, let's talk for a minute about his incredible disguise. His disguise is a mustache and a long blonde wig, with like it's like it's it's like uh, it's teased at the front, isn't it? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, this uh, is a mustache and a long blonde wig. It's an incredible scene. Olivia Newton-John, who plays the bank teller in this scene, is is ha- has no time for this. Knows that he he's a joke uh, and doesn't give him the the money he wants. But in that interaction, is where the angels think that John Travolta can be. Uh, redeemed you know what's very strange though is that she double crosses him she's a bank teller and she fills his bag with some bank deposit slips and she keeps the money which is actually the plot of the canadian classic the silent partner with elliot gould and christopher Plummer. but unfortunately this movie does not end with john travolta shooting up a mall dressed as santa claus (laughs) again might have been a better ending um (laughs) It's a tough movie to watch. I, re- I remember seeing it as a kid because it used to be on city TV, I think, every now and then. And I would happen to watch it. 
Uh, it's not a good movie. It's not a great follow-up to Grease. It didn't have the same magic. Uh, to pardon the pun there also. Um, it's just, it's a, the, the framing device makes no sense. However, you do get an Oscar-worthy performance out of the man who plays the devil in this movie, trying to thwart the angels' plans, and that's played by the the enigmatic Oliver Reed. I managed to do 100 episodes of Junk Filter without ever mentioning the word Mordecai, but it must be said that Oliver Reed in this movie's mustache is Mordecai-esque. It is. It is. He plays a very proper gentleman de- devil who has a cane and a, a hat and a lovely mustache, and he. I think he... I'm assuming he was on something during the movie, mostly beer, I'm assuming, but uh, he seems to be to be playing it very earnestly. Yeah. Oliver Reed seems to be the actor most aware that he's in a terrible movie. In <laughs> like he's giving a very, very broad uh, performance and he looks like he's about to crack up most of the time. It's a bad movie, but I remember seeing it. However, we did get one good thing out of it, which was the single... Uh, Twist of Fate, which is one of my favorite songs. Just like Xanadu, Two of a Kind didn't do very well financially, but was a giant soundtrack hit. And Twist of Fate was Olivia Newton-John's final big smash hit on the pop charts. In fact, the producers were so sure that Twist of Fate was going to be a hit that they wound up tossing out the score by Bill Conti that had already been uh, recorded and replaced it with uh, music by this guy named Patrick Williams, who was tasked to actually work in the melody of the song Twist of Fate into the soundtrack. So like, there's this ridiculous uh, car chase where you can hear like a French horn version of Twist of Fate. <laughs> the film's tagline was, it took a twist of fate to make them two of a kind. <laughs> They're really, really... Uh, really pushing it to the point that I'm like, why didn't you just call the movie Twist of Fate? Well, see, I, for some reason, thought the movie was called Twist of Fate. (laughs) Well, I remembered it's not. Twist of Fate was produced by Canada's own David Foster, who Olivia Newton-John worked with a lot throughout the rest of the 80s. Although her her career on the pop charts pretty much ended here in 1983, she had hits on the adult contemporary uh, charts. Then she became sort of, um, I, w- I wouldn't go so far as to say an oldies act, but kind of a legend. You know, she would do sort of cameos in on TV shows. Like I think she showed up on Murphy Brown and stuff like mm-hmm. that. This was the period where she became an entrepreneur and got in on the craze in the 80s for all things Australian, ranging from Paul Hogan to Yahoo Sirius to Men at Work. Uh, She started a a chain of stores and a fashion line with Pat Carroll Uh called Koala Blue. Of course she did. Because she was nostalgic for not being able to get Australian meat pies anywhere in the States. So she decided to open her own boutique where you could get, you know, maybe in Australia, it was easy to get a Vegemite sandwich according to men at work, but not in the United States. Have you ever had Vegemite? No, I never have. I've had Marmite. I've had Marmite. I'm not a fan of Marmite and I can't imagine being a fan of Vegemite for multiple reasons. Sadly, Koala Blue, the, the business went bankrupt in the early nineties. Her, uh, explanation was it was because of the economic downturn right 
people right people didn't have extra money for australian meat pies anymore <laughs> whereas be, before that you just buy, people were buying them all over the place Olivia Newton-John was diagnosed with cancer in the in the very early 90s and fought valiantly against cancer for a long time she basically concentrated on on her health she did make the occasional return to the big screen including Canada's own score a hockey musical didn't that open tiff one year it was the opening night gala of the 2010 Toronto International Film Festival they decided yeah. to start the festival with score a hockey musical another film by the way that is a musical where they cut all the dancers off at the waist i think we i think we 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 both made a choice to not watch that movie and preparation for this yeah i'm saving it because i'm obviously going to do a whole episode on score, a hockey <laughs> yeah. musical so i didn't want to just uh blow it all here <laughs> <laughs> she was also i think her her last movie was uh the the paul hogan's last movie the incredible mr dundee yes sadly her final screen credit is the uh crocodile dundee the film within a film sort of charlie kaufman-esque uh, the Incredible Mr. Dundee, which is a postmodern take on the Crocodile Dundee series or something with Paul Hogan and John Cleese. Uh, yeah, that's unfortunately, that's Olivia's last credit. One of her other final credits was Sharknado 5, Global Swarming, where she appeared with her daughter, Chloe. She, she plays her, herself in that, right? I believe she does. Yeah. Chloe, her, her only child, um, went through a lot of stuff as a young woman. She as soon as she turned 18, got a lot of plastic surgery. Apparently she spent half a million dollars on plastic surgery. She was also treated for alcohol and cocaine addiction. One of the the problems though, was that when Olivia Newton-John was first diagnosed with cancer, she kept that information from her daughter. Her daughter found out about it in the schoolyard because it had been the subject of tabloid stuff. And that may have been when her daughter was only six or seven years old. So I think that was a fairly traumatic event for her daughter that uh, goes to explain some of the, the difficulties that she had growing up, I guess. Um, and also having an incredibly famous mother, you know, like these are all things that are pretty hard to, to get out from under. I was disappointed to read that Chloe has been spreading anti-vax theories, but uh, I think she had a fairly good relationship with her mother, certainly by the end, though. Also, another mystery about Olivia's life is that she had a longtime boyfriend whose name was Dennis McDermott. He was a photographer, and in the year 2005, he disappeared. He was lost at sea. He was on a trip on a fishing boat with 22 other passengers, and then the boat apparently sank. I don't know how you fit 23 people on a fishing boat. No, that seems, well, it seems crazy. But did anyone else from that boat ever, no one's been found. There's not a lot of information about this on the internet. McDermott's personal belongings were found in the parking lot of the place where the boat set off. So all of his ID and everything was found away from his, his person when he disappeared. And that led to conspiracy theories that he faked his own death. Well, people say that they say they found him in a small town in Mexico. For the last few years, people have been trying to stoke these rumors of uh, this man being found in Mexico, but apparently they've all been debunked. And Olivia Newton-John never really wanted to talk about it. Even in her memoir, she just basically admits that the guy disappeared and that it was very difficult to deal with, but she provided no other information. 
he has not been officially designated as being dead. And that's why the rumors still persist. Such a weird story. And as I said, there's not much info on it. Just, I guess when you when you disappear, you don't make a lot of news, but... Yeah, but when your girlfriend is a living Newton John, though, you know. Yeah. And then also, Terrence, you said that uh, Olivia had stalkers, too. Uh, there's a guy in Louisiana named Michael Owen Perry, who in 1990, uh, he was obsessed with Xanadu, and he started to believe that Olivia Newton John was talking to him uh, in the movie through her eyes. Hmm. telling him to do stuff and that she wasn't actually in the movie. She was living at the bottom of Lake Arthur. There's a lake somewhere in Louisiana. And it made him so crazy that he went, uh, he went on a killing spree, killed his family, a bunch of people. Uh, he was deemed insane. No, he wasn't. He wasn't deemed insane. He's on death row currently still, but all because he thought that uh, Olivia Newton-John's eyes were speaking to him from the bottom of Lake Arthur. And he had a kill list, and she was on the kill list. Yes. Apparently, Olivia Newton-John took these threats so seriously that she moved back to Australia for a while. Yeah, where she had another stalker also. So she didn't have a good time for a bit between stalkers. But th this guy's story is nuts. The other strange story about Olivia Newton-John is that she found love, the big love of her life, at the age of 59 with this American scientist and an environmental activist named John Easterling, who apparently knew nothing about her music, not interested at all, not a fan. As far as he was concerned, she was a normal, ordinary person, not a celebrity. And maybe that was something that Olivia Newton-John needed at the time. But for some reason, she went on a psychedelic trip with him. She went with him to Peru to the rainforest, and she underwent a, an ayahuasca ceremony with him. And this is from the Daily Mail uh, article that I read about it. It says, Olivia embraced the psychedelic drug and its promise of enlightenment, spending a night vomiting and hallucinating by the edge of the Amazon in the aftermath. Trippy, man. <laughs> Wild. <laughs> First of all, wait, let me go back here. How do I understand people who don't like certain genres of music or, or art? How do you become an adult human being? And pretend to not know who Olivia Newton-John is. <laughs> like, I know he's a scientist, but... How could a guy who's into psychedelic drugs and expanding his consciousness not have seen Xanadu? At least a hundred times. <laughs> What's he talking about? I wonder if they got high one night and watched Xanadu. That's when he left her. <laughs> no, they stayed married. Yeah. That's a crazy claim, though. I don't know who you are. I'm a, I'm a weird scientist who's into drugs. <laughs> I've never maybe, heard of you. Maybe he knew about her stalker, so he wanted to sort of set her mind at ease by saying, I don't know who you are. Right, right. Yeah, do the exact opposite. <laughs> but I watched this interview with the two of them where he, he he's, I think he's a Texan, and he was saying, like, I had no idea. I'd never heard her music. I had no, I, I don't, Greece, I don't know. Greece is what I use in my car. I have no idea. Xanadu, that's uh, the house that Charles Foster Kane lived in. <laughs> What's he talking about? The only, the only, the only movie I knew that she was in was was a movie called Tomorrow. <laughs> I saw the Spanish version called Tomorrow, Tomorrow, Manana. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was very sad to hear about Olivia Newton-John's passing. It's not like I have any of her albums or anything like that, but I just realized with the with her passing how important she was to popular culture. 
I hadn't considered the uh, the big shadow that she cast. Yeah, S- same same thing. I like I don't own any of her albums either, but in the wake of her passing, just going through stuff and hearing things and watching things, realizing how much I, I think a, a, she's not given enough credit in what she did for music, both country and pop uh, movies, maybe not so much except for Greece. Um, but I don't think she's given as, uh, as, as much credit as Madonna has been given or Cindy Lauper even, or any, yeah, it's, uh, it's strange because Without Olivia Newton-John, we wouldn't have other artists today. Terrence, wonderful having you on the show. Uh, Do you want to tell us what you're up to? Uh, writing and hosting trivia. I host uh, three of them a week in Toronto. Uh, but for those not in Toronto, the most accessible one is uh, on Twitch every Thursday night at 7.30. Go to twitch.tv slash anotherrandtrivia. You can play trivia and win some prizes. I'm currently in a 30-week testing out hot sauce uh, every night of my quiz. So tune in and watch me try a new hot sauce every week. I, I'm so glad that I finally got to talk about score a hockey musical on this show. Yeah, it's, it'll be good preparation for your upcoming five-hour episode. <laughs> uh, it's too bad she made one really banger movie, Grace, but the rest were just all garbage. I thought you were going to say it's really too bad she made score a hockey musical, but <laughs> then the rest of her career. <laughs> Terrence Belazzo, thank you so much for joining me, and please come back. Thanks for having me, Jesse, and I will. Thank you. Before we go, just a reminder that we do have a Patreon, and patrons of the podcast help to make it possible. About 30% of our shows are available to patrons exclusively. To become a patron and to receive access to bonus episodes every month, please go to patreon.com junkfilter, and please follow us on Twitter at junkfilterpod. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken, and thank you for listening.